This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing Our Work, Session 14, A History of the International Civil Rights Center and Museum. Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance member Diane McFarland details the tumultuous history of the International Civil Rights Museum located in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, and now it is my pleasure to introduce to you our speaker, Diane McFarland. Thank you all for being here tonight. Okay. Oh, excuse me. Uh, as Cindy said, I'm a member uh, of the GARA White Caucus and also a smaller working group, uh, our word for committee. I think the, the idea is that we won't be there forever, we'll do our work and then we'll move on. Um, but um, we've, this working group has begun a project to put together a really comprehensive history about the development of the Civil Rights Museum and about the local uh, reactions, support, lack of support. Uh, we hope to do a lot of interviews with um, people uh, leaders, people who were involved in starting the museum and who have um, been been working on that all along, city leaders, uh, citizens, and eventually have a, um, um, a reference on a on a line where people can go and and get look at all this information together comprehensively, look at the the timeline consecutive timeline of the museum. And uh, so what I'm doing tonight is just giving a brief summary of sort of some of the things we've learned so far and discovered and um, about milestones, setbacks with, um, with the museum, about how the museum and its uh, founders and leaders have been um, received by the community um, what we want to do tonight um, is to look at all of this information in the way, in a way of examining um, local reactions and and um, events that are based on an analysis of the realities of institutional racism, white privilege, and implicit bias. This is what we have been, this is what our Doing Our Work series is about. It's what we've been sharing and ed trying to educate and talk about throughout the series, both uh, the 2015-16 and this series that started last fall. Um, so I wanna try to take that analysis and apply it a little bit to this specific um, instance in this specific entity in our city. Um, I use the word implicit bias, so I'll put in a little plug. Our last final um, session for doing our work for this 2016-17 season will be next month, June 6th, uh, and it will be on implicit bias. Um, so we hope you'll be able to attend. Claire, where is that going to be? Somebody remind me. First Baptist Church on Friendly Avenue, okay. 
Thank you. Okay, I want to make one thing clear. The name of the center is the International Civil Rights Center and Museum. And it has that name on purpose. Um, and for a reason, that name matters. And we're going to be talking about that. Um, but it's a mouthful, both figuratively and literally. So during tonight, I might say the Civil Rights Center. I might say the museum. I, I, I will use some shorthand. But, but know that um, it's much more than just a museum. And that is because the vision and, and purpose of the founders was not just to commemorate an important event in the history of the civil rights struggle, both here in Greensboro and around the globe. But it was also to be a place for education about the history of oppression, the ways that oppression still is happening, and how we go about the work of fighting that oppression and dismantling institutional racism. So it's not just a museum to say, oh, look what we did in the past. Um, so what I'll do when I start the actual presentation in regards to the museum is give just a quick um, timeline of some important, uh, as I said, some important milestones and things that have happened throughout the development and to the opening of the museum. And I'm gonna spend a little time sharing some um, information instances um, of looking at how the museum's been uh, treated and supported and not supported um, by the city, by the press, and by the public in Greensboro. Before I do that, I want to take just a few minutes to explore kind of those of us here. What do we already know about the museum? What do we think about it? Where are we? Where are we starting from? on this issue. Um, and then I'm gonna share a couple of little stories um, that I have that are more general to help kind of put us in uh, looking at this, trying to look at this in the way that, um, that will be useful that have been prevalent through this process. Um, so for myself, my family and I moved to Greensboro in 1999. I wasn't really aware about, you know, the closing of the Woolworths and all of that and, and what had happened to save the building and, and start uh, working toward having the museum. Um, I, you know, I came, became aware of the sit-ins. I really couldn't tell you if I was aware of it before I moved here or not. I don't remember, so which probably means if I was, it was only vaguely. Um, I don't think we voted, I voted on the first bond referendum in 2000. I probably hadn't been here long enough to even know what was going on yet. Um, in 2006, I, pretty sh I voted for the referendum. Um, and um, I, I remember vaguely the museum opening. I, I wasn't involved, I didn't attend. Uh, I wasn't really super aware of it. Um, and it's just been last month that I finally visited and toured the museum. Um, and before that, through those years, if, you know, the 2000s of living in Greensboro, I formed some opinions. Um, and I'll share those in just a little bit. Um, so that's kind of a little bit about where I started from before I began to really study this and get involved with GARA and this work. 
Um, so I'm just going to ask you uh, a number of questions, and I would love for us to be able to, you know, really like take time and talk about these. But uh, we're supposed to be out of here at 8:30, and I have a presentation to give. So I'd hate to lose this great gig. So um, we better make sure that happens. So I'm just going to ask you to give me a show of hands, to, and we'll just go through these questions fairly quickly. Um, how many of you here lived in the Greensboro area and actually remember um, the sit-ins when they that were old enough or aware enough and you remember when they happened? So that's pretty far back. We don't have a lot of people here that, were, that know that. Did you participate in them? Nobody here. Um, how many of you were here around the time um, the Woolworths closed and remember that. Okay, so that was a few more. Um, so then between 1995 and 2010 when the museum opened, a lot went on. We'll talk about it a little bit. Um, and there was lots of uh, stuff in the news, there was various fundraising, there were setbacks, there were controversy. Are, were any of you really aware, paying a lot of attention, remember reading a lot about those things throughout that time period? Some? Okay. Um, if, you don't, if you don't mind sharing, you certainly don't have to. Um, if you were here in 2000 and or 2006, did you vote for the bond referendum? Anybody vote against it? That's okay. Um, and then another question, I think I know the answer to this based on what you're telling me so far. Is, everybody, is there anybody here who does not know who Skip Alston and Earl Jones are? Oh, good. I didn't think so, since you all seem to have been around for a little while. Um, so I'll tell you now, I won't ask you, but I'll, I'll say, those 10 years that I lived here and I was getting to know Greensboro and I wasn't politically involved, I was raising a daughter. I um, read the newspaper, and, but was not, you know, I didn't go to city council meetings or things like that or anything like that. But even with really not doing much more than keeping an eye on the newspaper, or maybe at that point, television, local news, I knew what the attitude was about Skip Austin and Earl Jones in Greensboro. And it colored and influenced my opinion and my perception. And I'm, I have no doubt that, you know, I might have heard something or seen something or heard their name and, you know, rolled my eyes thinking, oh, here, you know, here we go again. And I did. Because that's what I saw and that's what I heard. And it influenced me. So, I've learned a lot since then. Still have more to learn. Um, so, one last question. How many of you have actually toured the museum? Oh, yay. Okay. Were you impressed? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, I want to share a couple of things. Um, Cindy um, 
mentioned, I believe, we, we talk about this a lot at these, at these sessions, you know, part, what our what a part of the challenge of what we're trying to do here when we talk about doing our work, uh, we're talking about us white folks and trying to learn to see our own biases and our ingrained ideas about white superiority. We might think we don't have those, but trust me, we do. And to be willing while you're here and listening to be uncomfortable. And, and, and if it, that's a challenging thought or, or you wanna question it or you wanna protest, you know, I'm a, but, but I'm a good person. I have these great relations, you know, I have this black friend, <laughs> as we'll say. Um, but resist, try to resist that is what we want you to do and really think about it and try to um, look at things differently. What I would say is that um, the racial biases in the U.S. are largely the result of a, um, a dominant social paradigm that this country was founded on, that of white racial superiority. It's where we came from, it's how we started. Um, I was looking at trying to do a little research about this and, and I came across a, a piece on the website of the Crossroads Anti-Racism Group um, and they were um, talking about this paradigm um, and they, pub they uh, referenced the work of Juan, Juan F. Perea who is a law professor, I think he's currently at Loyola in Chicago. And uh, he was writing about what he calls the black-white binary paradigm of race. Now, he was talking about it in a different, little bit different context in the fact of how it just deals with black and white and leaves out, tends to leave out other minority groups. But it still fits his discussion, his definitions, I think still very much fit in our context. This is what he had to say, a paradigm is the set of shared understandings that permits us to distinguish those facts that matter in the solution of a problem from those facts that do not. Paradigms thus define relevancy. In so doing, paradigms control fact gathering and investigation. Data gathering efforts and research are focused on understanding the facts and circumstances that the relevant paradigm teaches us are important. As a paradigm becomes the widely accepted way of thinking and of producing knowledge on a subject, it tends to exclude or ignore facts or theories that do not fit the expectations produced by that paradigm. So, if a society were to create a paradigm that uses the fallacy of race to establish a social hierarchy, enshrines that in its founding documents, that black people are not fully human, that whites are the only ones fit to have power and make decisions, it builds institutions that benefits whites over blacks, if whites are the ones who decided the norms of what is, correct way, what is the correct way of doing things in all aspects of life and society, is it any wonder that after more than 250 years of living within this paradigm, we as white people tend to dismiss the contributions of people of color 
deny the lived experiences of people of color and think we know better when it comes to how people of color should feel, how they should present their own history, how even how they should work for justice. Um, so an example, earlier this year, I was part of a discussion in a group of white folks and we were sharing memories about encountering racism maybe for on a real one-to-one -one personal substantive level for the first time. And one person was sharing their experience and very innocently made this statement comparing the way they treated me, which the person shared was not good, versus the way they perceived I treated them. Now, I don't think that person even realized what they had said, but there's such a huge assumption in that statement, unconscious, that I see things the way they are. What I, saw, what I see, what I say, that's just how it is. But they, they misunderstood me and they're making incorrect assumptions and they didn't understand me. They made a mistake. They, they heard it wrong. They, they took it wrong, okay? Now everybody, we all have biases like this and ways of seeing things that are based on, um, you know, our upbringing, our past experiences, where we live, our race, our religion. But I think that this, in this particular instance, um, is really portrays specifically the tendency of white people as a group to dismiss and deny the knowledge, the opinions, the feelings, the lived experiences of people of color, simply because they're people of color. And even though we may not even realize that that's what's going on in our brains, we think we know better. Because we've, we've learned that we're superior. So what we're gonna do tonight is ask you to change your perspective and try to look through, look at this information I'm gonna give you through the lens that, that Gara is trying to look through it. Um, and so we're gonna ask you to be open to shifting your perspective. Uh, and more often than not, when we are confronted about this kind of thing or we, you know, something's brought up about it or about something that happened in the past or even currently, uh, with all of the things that are going on today uh, with Black Lives Matter and about police violence and people, you know, we want to defend ourselves as white people. We want to say, oh, you know, that's kind of paranoid or you're not seeing it the way it is or it's really not that bad. Um, and we want to deny our responsibility. We want to deny our our history, our complicity, um, and that of our ancestors. Um, I was, as I was doing research again, I came across something. This was on the website of Preservation Greensboro. And it's an article and the title is Pivoting Politics, Documenting the Shifting Position of John Motley Moorhead on the Topic of Slavery. Now, I, all of you seem to have been, you know, you've been around Greensboro a while, you may know, but just in case, if you're not familiar with Preservation Greensboro, they've been around for about 50 years. They started 
with the purpose of uh, saving the Blandwood Mansion, which is a historic home of Governor Moorhead when he lived here in Greensboro, which I think he did after um, he served as governor in the mid-1840s. And after that, I think he lived primarily in Greensboro uh, throughout the remainder of his life. Um, so this group wanted to save the mansion. Uh, it's an important historical and architectural treasure. And so they've been around since the 1960s. And the mansion's been a museum since 1970. Now, I don't know that much about Preservation Greensboro. Uh, I've never been to the museum. I'm not a big history buff. Um, and, but I do know or believe that these are good people. They do good work in the city and important work. But this article in particular struck me as very tone deaf and as I, I said, I put in my notes, just twisting itself in knots, in my view, to somehow paint the fact that Governor Moorhead owned slaves, benefited from slavery, and sometimes tailored his views on slavery for political expediency. And they tried to paint this in the most positive light possible because Governor Moorhead was an important figure in our history and a good man. So he couldn't, you know, we can't reconcile that. Um, so I'm gonna, tr I tried to be brief in wanting to share a little bit, a few excerpts from this. It was hard, <laughs> but we'll see how I do. The article opens and it says, there's no, it acknowledges, it says there's no lens in our modern context to understand or condone the enslavement of fellow human beings that took place in the first 258 years of American history. For citizens who lived in this reality, theirs was a world that was nuanced along a spectrum where our modern world has clarity to see right and wrong. North Carolina's statesman John Motley Moorhead was among the most agile politicians in the American South during this period. Agile. In the context of enslavement, what nuances did Moorhead reveal that might be useful in understanding this period of American history? Poignantly, what might these revelations tell us about the character of a statesman such as Governor John Motley Moorhead? So then it goes on, it gives a little bit of biographical information about Moorhead. It mentions how slavery was expanding in the U.S. in the first half of the 1800s, but in Guilford County, due to the Quaker and abolitionist influence, the enslaved population was a relatively low 18%. It goes on, as the enslaved population increased throughout North Carolina, so did the unease with which many among the white population felt so did the unease with which many among the white population felt, felt in living in such an uncivil society. The result was to severely limit the activities and rights of all African-American citizens, free and enslaved, and those who associated with them. Now, I might be misreading this, but the way I read that, it says many whites here in Guilford County were not comfortable with slavery, so their response was to limit the activities and rights of African-American citizens, if they could really be called that. I, I, that, that was very puzzling to me, but that's the way I read it. Um, and then there follows a story, which is 
included to demonstrate why it might be that Moorhead held a more humanized perspective on slavery and something that may have inspired his actions against slavery. So this story was told um, by his mother um, about her childhood nurse and how she was faithful and kind and became a real mother to the 10 children who were left in her care. Now the nurse, you learn, was an African princess who was kidnapped and sold into slavery in America. So she was their slave. Not that that's surprising, we know that that was how, the, how it happened. The nurse was a slave. Uh, Moorhead's mother also told of a boy, another slave from Africa, who the nurse befriended and how she consoled the children, and I'm assuming they're talking about the, the white children that she had charge of, um, when the boy was found hanging by a tree in the yard. Um, and this is referred to in the article as a heart-wrenching story related to African history. So not only were the people themselves being exploited, but here to me their stories and their misery are being exploited to highlight the compassion and humanity of this slave owner. Um, now it goes on, it talks about the pol politics. In the realm of politics, the article says Moorhead likely struggled in maintaining the mainstream pro-slavery political position of the majority of North Carolinians, while determining the relatively moderate position of folks in Guilford County. It discusses how his position was politically risky and how he won the governorship in spite of his nuanced views. The article then goes on to discuss Moorhead's personal narrative with enslaved peoples. It describes existing records of slaves purchased, owned, and sold in a manner that takes care to emphasize that the numbers were small compared to his peers and decreased while those of others were increasing. It mentions that mysteriously, a large percentage of his slaves were children, but they might have been tasked with working in the household and grounds due to a relatively light workload compared to agricultural or industrial labor. And they may have benefited from the availability of skilled medical care in Greensboro. Um, so, and then in, in the summing up in the ending of the article, it says, in contrast to his progressive position, documentation survives to show that he did practice in buying and selling human beings, though the population diminished by half from 1850 to 1860 to 17. Now this is as close as I could find in the entire piece, which you can tell was lengthy, because I've only shared a small portion of it. Um, that ever even comes close to making a straightforward statement that Governor Moorhead was a slave owner. So this illustration I, I'm using to share and 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 show this incredible need that we have to paint ourselves and our ancestors as good people, um, because we can't seem to wrap our heads around the fact that, you know, we can be good people or do good things and at the same time still have done horrible things and be doing horrible things, okay? Um, 
So we feel compelled to downplay the horrors that we and our ancestors and our role in them. So what we want to do is we want to just look at the surface and, you know, kind of keep everything real nice and pleasant and that's in the past and, oh, we don't really need to rehash this and talk about this and go over this. Uh, let's just ignore that. It's done. It's over. So, as we talked about, in order, you know, in order to, but in order to actually understand where we came from and to really change it from, from our institutional, from our institutions and our foundation up, we have to be able to talk about it. We have to be real about it. We have to admit it. We have to be uncomfortable and look at it completely and acknowledge it and talk about it. So I hope that that's what you'll do tonight as I'm trying to share this perspective about the Civil Rights Center, that you'll try to look beneath the surface and let yourself be uncomfortable, get out of your comfort zone, and really try to look at this in a different way and from a different perspective. So, finally, now we'll have my presentation. And I just want to say a couple of things. Um, again, this is just a small sample of the information that we're gathering that we still have together. There's facts that we had no, of, you know, we found some of the information and we still need to dig a little and find more details. So this is just a beginning. Um, and some items that I mentioned are gonna just be very general without, a lot, without specific names or dates or amounts or, um, and that's because um, there may be sensitive issues involved, there may be privacy issues involved, we may be, you know, feel like, well, we need to get permission to talk about this and we haven't been able to do that yet. And some of it, we just don't know all the information yet, we're still learning. And then there are some other things that I'm gonna be really specific about and I'm gonna mention names and people and places and organizations. And if I do that, part, for one, it's because they're out there for public consumption in some form already. So I'm not revealing anything that any of you can go online and find. And because, and I, and I, I want you to be aware that I'm not doing it to, to demonize anybody. These are just facts. This is how it is. And this, we believe, is what's behind some of it. Some of it's conscious, some of it's not. Doesn't matter because it has the same impact. So, um, a timeline as I have it so far for the museum. Um, so, on February 1st, 1960, our Greensboro Four went to, for the first time to sit in at the lunch counter. I think we all know about that. Um, I put together this little slide because there's no photograph of the first day of those four sitting at the counter. And you all have seen the photo of them walking out away afterwards that night um, many times, I'm sure. And I like these footprints. <laughs> um, so the sit-ins began and they went on and, um, for several months. There was back and forth. And on July 25th, 1960, the Woolworths quietly without any publicity or announcement, integrated 
the lunch counter in downtown Greensboro. And now, this had started, um, this happened in Greensboro and the lunch counter was integrated, but this was still going on across the country. I, the sit-ins in Greensboro um, started really a firestorm of this happening all across the country and that went on. This picture's from uh, Jackson, Mississippi, sit-ins in 1993. So they were still happening, people were still fighting for that right. Uh, in, so I'm, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time from that part of history because we're gonna move on and focus on the Woolworths and the museum. Um, in 1990, at the 30th anniversary uh, commemoration, uh, this picture was taken of the Greensboro Four um, sitting at the, at the lunch counter. This was just a few years before the museum, I mean, before the Woolworths closed. And I love this picture and I wanted to show it. This is, I believe, the last picture of the four of them together before David Richmond, who's at the end at the right, died later that year. So I think it's a wonderful picture. Um, in, on October 14th, 1993, uh, the Woolworths announced that a Greensboro store would close by the end of January 1994. In October, on October 23rd, the lunch counter closed. On November 3rd, 1993, Sit-In Movement, Inc. was formed by Skip Austin and Earl Jones. And on January 13th, 1994, Sit-In Movement, Inc. announced plans to purchase the Woolworths in Greensboro and convert it into a civil rights museum. And then on January 22nd, 1994, the Woolworths closed for the final time. On February 19, 1994, the first fundraiser was held in Greensboro to begin um, raising money for the museum. In 1994, the city agreed to give the museum $75,000 a year for three years um, um, to help finance the museum. Um, then, um, in February 1, 1995, um, Rosa Parks attends, attended the sit-in memorial service at the Woolworths counter and later that evening received the first annual Austin Jones International Civil and Human Rights Award. And that has been a yearly um, award and banquet, I believe, every year since that first one in 1995. And that's, that could be a whole uh, list in itself to name all of the people um, and heroes who have been given that award through the years. Um, in September to October of 1995, um, the uh, founders had hired a director and there was disagreement and, uh, and the director was fired and this was hashed out extremely publicly in all over the paper for a number of months. Um, in November 1995, they began their international fundraising campaign. In September of 1996, uh, the City Movement opened their offices next to the Woolworths. In spring of 1998, had been their original target for the hoping to open. Um, that had to be revised. Uh, it was later revised to February 1999. And so a lot of the struggles that we'll talk a little bit more about and that 
we still have lots to, to research about of, of raising the funds and, th and different things that happen and changing designs and, to, and refining the vision as it does cause delays in the project. Uh, and then in November of 2000, the first bond referendum was put before voters uh, and it failed. Uh, in February of 2001, uh, my information is that the City Movement Inc. paid off the mortgage on the building. Um, and they had, during, and during those next few years, they um, had delayed the target date for the opening until July of 2005, and um, we're still working on raising funds. And then in fall of 2004, they discovered a serious uh, water problem um, in the basement that required major repairs and reconstruction, and this was a really big, um, major uh, development that was going to require a lot more money and slowed things down again um, for the opening and the progress. In November 2006, a second bond referendum for the museum went before the voters and again it failed. In 2008 and 2009, um, museum officials um, learned about and took steps, applied for and received um, the historic preservation tax credits, which um, provided them with a large infusion of cash to help complete the museum. And in, on February 1st, 2010, the museum opens on the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the sit-ins. In 2013, the museum requested and received a $1.5 million forgivable loan from the city of Greensboro. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. In December 2016, the museum retired the historic tax credit liability um, and, and that cleared up um, a major liability that the museum had been carrying. I'll talk again, talk more about that in a minute. In, I think, I don't have the date on here, but I think it was again in December or January, just this past December or January, the museum filed a lawsuit against the News and Record. I'll tell you more about that. And on January 12th, of this year, the museum received a $50,000 grant from the National Parks Service. So that's where I'm going to stop about just timeline and just some different things that happened. And now I want to kind of go back through that a little bit and talk about some of the, the background and um, of how things happened and why things happened. And the, um, so this the things that I'm going to share um, really point to the fact that that many people, myself included, see a lot of the things that have happened as clearly showing that there's been a double standard all along among citizens, the, paper, the press, the city leaders, and how the Civil, the museum's been treated, the International Civil Rights Center Museum's been treated as opposed to other entities 
in the city, similar type organizations. So, um, one thing that I'll mention is just, just the, the general the resistance and the disdain that has been shown toward the leadership of Mr. Austin and Mr. Jones. After I was sitting, sitting there and putting that timeline together, it just struck me, if you look at that, from October 14th, 1993, when the store announced that it would be closing, until November 3rd, 1993, a space of three weeks, Mr. Austin and Mr. Jones learned that the site was owned by First Citizens Bank, met with the bank president, learned the plan was to demolish the building for a parking lot, made an offer to buy the building, and organized and formed the nonprofit corporation, the sit-in movement, to raise funds for the purchase of the building to convert it into a museum. Three weeks. No one else in the city, not the city officials, not any developers, not any historical preservationists, stepped up to try to save the museum. But they were there, and they got this rolling and made that progress in three weeks. And then, two months later, were able to make the announcement that this was gonna happen, they were gonna buy the building. They, had, they secured a loan during, in 1994. In order to secure that loan, to purchase the museum, Mr. Austin, Mr. Jones, and Doug Harris, another attorney in town and a friend of Mr. Jones, became who became involved with their efforts and I think is still on the board today. Um, they personally guaranteed the loan and put up some of their own assets as collateral. And later when the, their $56,000 was needed to make the final payment on the mortgage, Mr. Olson wrote a personal check for that payment. Funds were raised to repay him, but he had the museum use those funds for operating expenses. He waited two years to be repaid and charged no interest to the museum. Now, during all of this and beyond, there were multiple articles, editorials, quotes from city officials, and letters to the editor in the, New York, in the News and Record that accused the two of race baiting, trying to make money off the museum, blatant self-interest, being a divisive presence, financial improprieties, and I could go on. Now, other than the fact that Mr. Jones was the head of another nonprofit in town which had financial difficulties and eventually shut down, and for which he was publicly, by the state or the federal government, clear, you know, auditors, made clear there was no wrongdoing on Mr. Jones's part. But in the paper, in the press, in the community, he was vilified about this, and it was used over and over as a reason that, oh, we shouldn't, you know, he shouldn't be involved and in, in, in charge of this, and if, if he is, then how can we support it, and we shouldn't give him money. Um, the only thing I can find is that they're unpopular because they were some, among the first African Americans in Greensboro to become involved in politics, serve in city and county government, and to insist on pointing out racism where they saw it, and not just sitting down and being quiet and going along. And that earned them the label from one former county commissioner of race relations racketeers. 
So, and then in the news and record, I, I'm not, there's not to say that there were never any positive articles about the museum in the news and record, but um, I've come across a few things like these. Um, and if you can tell, I kind of put some logos behind them so you can see what I'm referring to. These are headlines from the news and record at various times about uh, a man who was um, donating property to help start the, um, a children's, the Greensboro Children's Museum. And that was a man with a vision has something exciting in store for Greensboro. And then uh, downtown Greensboro Incorporated it was getting going. And these are some of the, the headlines about leaders who were coming to uh, take over and head the DGI. Downtown Dr. Ed Wolverton seeks right prescription to revive downtown Greensboro. Mr. Downtown, Jimmy Black. I mean, they're just so, I've never seen anything like that. Giving credit, giving praise, giving appreciation to Skip Olsen and Earl Jones for what they did. Uh, if you can find them, please share them with me. Um, so, and then there's also the issue that the fundraising efforts um, were often put under pressure about money, money was gonna come with, with strings and, and it was all about who should control the message and who should run things. And there's a statement that Dina Hayes, who's the current board chair and has been involved, I think, from the beginning or nearly the beginning uh, of this process, did a guest column a while back in the paper, and this is a statement she made. During these early years, many people offered help, but only if the story told would not make some populations uncomfortable, and only if they had control, only if they could control, not only the message, but too often museum policy and practice. And during, more recently, during the negotiations about the uh, loan that the city gave to the museum, um, you know, the city made an approach about taking over the, the running of the museum. Um, and, and there were plenty of suggestions about that the current leaders weren't capable of doing it and the city knew how to do it better. And, um, even though there's never been in any of the audits of the museum any indication of any mismanagement discovered by the museum officials. Were they inexperienced at this kind of thing when they started? Yes. And they had to learn a lot and they had setbacks and they had to change things and they made mistakes, I'm sure. But I'm, could point, we could point to plenty of other organizations in Greensboro who had those kind of struggles and hiccups who did not receive the treatment that these men and women have under have gone through um let's see and and it's so much of it was done publicly statements made by officials i mean never mind letters to the editor by citizens who wanted to criticize but uh, I found one instance where um, the city manager made a public statement 
2015 at a Rotary Club meeting that the center was not sustainable on its current course. And I, I couldn't find them, couldn't get my hands on them. I had seen them, but couldn't to get them, to be able to quote them tonight. But I've seen at least another couple of statements, just as, if not worse than those, just predicting failure for the museum, you know, in the paper. Um, and then in January, as I, the last point that was on my timeline, in January of 2017, um, WFDD ran the story on January 12th when the National Park Service announced that Greensboro was, um, that the International Civil Rights Center Museum was a recipient of a $50,000 grant. The news and record that I found mentioned it in passing in an article with this title. I don't know why forgivable is in quotes, uh, but you can, I think from that headline, you can guess what the tone of that article was. Um, and there are also very clear contrast um, between the funding and the treatment of funding requests um, and the concerns and scrutiny over problems and delays or financial struggles between that of the museum and other groups in Greensboro. Um, this is um, something I got from, from the city budget office. Um, this is from the general fund, which is, if, I'm, if I got my facts right, primarily the general fund is, is local tax dollars, okay? For example, this, the $225,000 that the city gave the museum back at the beginning came from, which basically just a pass-through of federal grant money. It was not city-raised money. Uh, but this is the general fund. And this is, with one exception, as you see, the historical museum. These, this is how much money from 2005 to 2017 these groups and projects have received from the city out of the general fund. And the historical museum amount, that's, on, that's even, so we're talking about, what, 12 years, but for the historical museum, it's only been like seven, that's only seven years worth. That's, that's their yearly um, uh, payment, not payment, but the, the city pays the expenses for the historical museum. Now they are part of the library system, so they are part of the city, but they're basically run by a private group, okay? They're not, the city's not running this and it's not making money, okay? So there's a little comparison and as I put it down there, the Civil Rights Museum, the money that it shows in there for them was the loan that was given. As far as I have determined, all this other money is just given, okay? Um, and that doesn't even include, because I couldn't pull the numbers together, the fact that the city, to quite a large sum, I believe, every year, subsidizes the Coliseum. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the city giving these monies to these groups. But 
they're treated very differently than the museum. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. The, both of the bonds that were put on the ballots for the city were um, for the museum. The museum, it was in the, the language that the city, an agreement that the city made that the museum would be required to match those amounts of the bonds. I didn't see that as a requirement for any other bonds that the city has put out there for voting. Um, when the city um, requested the million and a half dollar loan in 2013, the terms were that it would be forgivable up to however much the, the museum raised in matching funds, and they were given two years to do that, and then any amount remaining would, be, would come due. Now, in 2010, the Nussbaum Center, which is a, uh, uh, I can't even think of how to say it now, but um, a startup think incubator, thank you, that's what I was looking for, for, uh, for startup small businesses um, in town, had requested $1.2 million grant to renovate a building because they had to leave their current space. The city approved the loan of $1.2 million contingent on the center receiving a federal grant that they were applying for. And they were going to be given 20 years to repay the loan. Uh, the center didn't get the grant, but ultimately the city did loan the money and subsequently they forgave the loan. And as far as I know, they weren't required to raise any matching funds. Um, and then I mentioned that the city, uh, the museum, I believe in December, or late last year or early this year, uh, filed a lawsuit against the News and Record, and that is in regard to the fact that the museum published um, a statement, I mean, the paper published a statement that the museum was $20 million in debt, $26 million in debt, when they knew that the money that they were talking about was the liability that the museum had um, that was to do with the historic tax credits. And the museum had to meet an obligation of paying off the debt service before that liability would go away. And that happened in December of 2016. They made the last payment, and that's done. But the paper presented it to, and, and made it look like they were just mired in debt. Um, and then we talked about, you know, the city supports a lot of other organizations that don't necessarily turn a profit and aren't necessarily expected to turn a profit, but their, their reasoning and their support of these, there's a lot of talk about, well, these are tourist attractions and they bring a lot of people into the city and they bring in a lot of tax revenue and tourism revenue for the city. Well. Look on TripAdvisor if you never have. The International Civil Rights Center and Museum is the number one tourist attraction on for the last three years in Greensboro on TripAdvisor. They have a Certificate of Excellence rating. Um, they, um, and I, I've listed up here like how many reviews they have and, and how positive it is. In comparing that, the, net, the only other attraction in Greensboro that has received more reviews is the Science Center, and it has almost a thousand, okay? 
The next highest one, as far as number of reviews, is the Guilford County National Military Park with 327. Now that's not to say, I mean, there's other measures than just this, but you know, I think that's pretty good. And yet, there's, there's really, there's just the, there's not the support financial or, or talking up the museum in the, within the city and city leadership and the development leader, you know, the, those development organizations that are trying to build downtown. They don't talk about this. They talk about all these other organizations that they give a lot of money to and that's why they do it because they bring in revenue for the city. Okay? And um, just totally lost my train of thought for a second. Maybe it'll come back the point I was going to make, but anyway. So those are just a few things and I am a little bit behind, but we started late, so I hope you'll bear with me a little bit because I want us to be able to talk just a little bit. Um, I want to take just a very few minutes. I, I want to have a little bit of small group discussion before we leave, and I'll give you kind of something I'd like you to talk about and then come back and kind of hear what you had to say. But I want to take a minute um, to see if there are just any specific comments or questions about what I've presented to you. If you um, wouldn't mind if you'd either um, come to this microphone right over here to speak or if one of, if Cindy, if you want to stand up and if people can't hear, we could repeat the question, but we want to try to do our best to make sure that you're, you can be heard if you have a question or a comment. Anybody? Yes, ma'am. The last, uh, the, that was in January, that was printed, and it said that um, they had shown, that the museum had shown um, fundraising to match all, but it seemed like it said around a little over 300,000. I don't know if that's changed since then. It's down to 165,000, but one of the to offset its fundraising expenses against the loan. We would have matched it a long time ago, but unlike any other organization, we were required to deduct all of our fundraising expenses. Thank you. I, that, it, was I, not, it was not dollar for dollar, but the contract stated from the right. very beginning, dollar for dollar. Thanks. I wasn't aware of that. Yes. Um, anybody else? Also, if I said anything that was incorrect, somebody correct me, but I, I think I had most of my facts straight. Yes, sir. Now, you said that your complete change is this past year. Did that change anything? I have noticed in what I've been reading that in terms that I, there are times when I felt like I've seen a little bit of a different attitude myself in editorial things, but I've never seen a, a period, you know, there was, there was at least um, not negative things at the beginning, but kind of once it started being negative, it never really turned around. But then again, every once in a while, I, I saw, I can't remember what it was, I didn't write it down, 
um, for tonight, but I saw a, an article that was about, that was somehow related to the museum, and it was very positive, and it wasn't, it was a week later, I saw another piece by the same reporter, same byline, completely negative. And that's what I was gonna say before. It's something that, that also isn't talked about and, and, and the city you know, seems to be oblivious, is that all this negative publicity, all of these negative attitudes, all of these grievances and imagined things and, and scrutiny and doubt and questioning of financial finances, has just been played out in public and in the press. How, how do you think that has not negatively affected the ability of the museum to raise money? That was the point that slipped in my mind just a minute ago. Yes, ma'am. Did you find any numbers about how many people have actually visited? Uh, I've looked at it before. Mr. Swain might be able to answer that. 70,000 visitors, pretty stable, visiting the museum each year. When I've looked at my competitors uh, that received that $12 million, they're down to like 23,000 visitors per year. And with our small staff, we serve along to the city of Greensburg, 70,000 per year. Anybody else? Oh, sorry, Cindy. Um, early on, you mentioned that the, the name ICRCM is very intentional. Could you speak to that? Thank you. I had it written down to talk about, and I think I skipped over it. Um, I think this, uh, that's just a portion of the museum's vision, vision statement, speaks to it a little bit. Um, let's see where I have written that. So here's something. The, the, the vision and purpose, this is my interpretation. You can add to this. Of the, of the founders of the museum was not only to commemorate an important event in the history of the civil rights struggle in Greensboro and around the globe. Well, I did read this. Um, so so it's, a, it's not just a museum, it's a center because it's an education center and it's meant to be. It's meant to be alive and active and, and have programming that highlights um, what's going on today and how we, the work we need to do to combat, continue to combat racism and institutional racism. And it's um, the international side was um, there, um, the idea was that the civil, the sit-ins in particular served as a model and sort of helped to spread um, a way of doing protests and a, across not only the country but across the, the world and the museum has some exhibits that talk, that, that talk about that and that, that, uh, that show those places around the world and, and what's been done and I think there are a lot more things that they want to do with that as money is available and they expand and, and develop. Would that be a fair? Uh, the the was because the civil rights sit-in movement was cited in protests across the world 
That's a reason that people were taking the nonviolent actions, and that's why we chose, or the founders at the time chose, the International Civil Rights Center Museum. And one of the things that we're working on now, we've written several grants, is to bring in more international exhibits for the upstairs portion of the floor of the museum. You'd be surprised at how many of those grants have been declined. But the, the intention is there to keep moving forward to bring more international exhibits. Uh, and, and one thing that this community needs to be fully aware of is that we're in high runnings for a World Heritage appointment. We've already been nominated. Uh, I attended a symposium in Atlanta last weekend and of all the civil rights institutions that were there, this particular one was best positioned for that appointment. It's probably gonna take about five, eight years or so, but we're in excellent shape, uh, and we think that we're gonna be on track for a world heritage appointment. So let me take just a second. Um, say and ask Mr. Swain to stand. This is John Swain, who's the director, the CEO and CFO, is that right, of the museum. And is that Skip Austin I see there? One of the founders. And give them a round of applause. Thank you for being here. And I, at, on that note, I want to add that I spoke to um, Earl Jones yesterday on the phone. I hope to talk to those three of these gentlemen a lot more in the future and learn a lot more things, but uh, I spoke to him briefly on the phone and he um, couldn't be here tonight, but he was very insistent that I express to all of you and to Gara in particular his appreciation for this work and for trying and for bringing this and trying to highlight this issue and share this information. He was most appreciative and, and said, please do not fail to share that with, the, with your group tonight. So, yes, ma'am. What do you make of the fact that the museum came up for this international work? It's been given a national park service The Smithsonian has endorsed it, that it gets so much more credit outside of Somebody else want to track that one? Uh, this is what I want. This is exactly what I want you to be thinking about and and, and looking at. Why would that be? Certainly. But uh, in visiting the Underground Railroad in uh, Ohio, I was told the same thing that the two museums that were run there, the city owned and the private owned museums, the community just did not appreciate what they had. I found it to be a, just an American museum, but when they consolidated, the employees still look at one another as they are city, we were private. It's us and them. Mm -hmm. And the partnership just did not work so, so well. But um, we, we have visitors from all across the world that comes to this museum in Greensboro and they called the State Department and said, we want to come to Greensboro to tour the International Civil Rights Center and Museum and study human rights and civil rights. Uh, I don't think that you can achieve that with just a local institution with local aspirations. 
Can I piggyback on that? Let me express my appreciation also as one of the founders. Uh, in 1995, when you didn't mention the milestone, uh, the Smithsonian requested a section of the uh, lunch counter. And we gave them a four-foot section uh, of the lunch counter. Not a part of the original lunch counter where they actually sat, but they had an extension of it. We gave them a four-foot section of that and for the students. And they put that on a permanent exhibit up in, in Washington at the Smithsonian. And at the African American Museum now, it's a, on a permanent exhibit. And every two to three times a week, they do a, demo, a mock demonstration of what happened here in Greensboro. And crowds of people, they go to that lunch counter and they tell the story about what happened here in Greensboro. And that's why we get so many international folks, over, people from over 45 different countries have visited the museum because they saw the, uh, the exhibit at the American, African American uh, Museum in, in Washington, D.C. And that's why they want to come down here to see the actual museum. So we get national, international exposure because we do have a presence in Washington. And I mean, for me, what, what I want to highlight about that and, and, and kind of to answer your question about why, why is that, it, it's exactly what we're talking about playing out right here in front of us and among us that we are so caught up and, and trapped in attitudes and beliefs from the past about the way to do things, who's qualified to do things, who should run things, the, you know, the way it ought to be, and our as the term's been coined in the last few years, white fragility about acknowledging and talking about race that when it's brought to the forefront, almost by reflex, we feel the need to stamp it down. And if we can, t you know, we're okay to take it and say, oh, you know, look at this great historical thing that happened in Greensboro, and we're so progressive, and what a great city it is, and this happened here. But to really, as I said, get beneath the surface and see, well, is it still here? Or just to even talk about all of the, the realities of, of what that was like and, and how do we make amends for that? How do, we change it. We don't want to talk about that. And so it's hard to have that monument standing there reminding us and not letting us ignore it. Well, thank you. It's interesting. Time to time we have a petition signing. And when you stop the man in the street and ask him, does Greensboro need the museum? Everybody says yes. So it's not coming from the public people on the street, but it's something else. So everybody says yes. We need the museum if you just kind of ask the man on the street. But I, I wonder what the answer would be if you really dug a little deeper with that man or woman on the street about well, what should it look like? What should it, what should it talk about? What, you know? I'm sorry? Oh, who should run it? Yeah, yeah. Um, any other questions or comments? Yes, sir. 
Um, yeah, I, I hope that with all the very rich and accurate and thoughtful uh, details that you provided tonight, that the people don't forget this way you started with the understanding of paradigms. Uh, I've been teaching about uh, paradigms for 30 years at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in terms of uh, constitution making and that sort of thing. And uh, I, I think that there's something very interesting about North Carolina, which I used to be much more closely associated with than I am now, uh, with the successors of Luther Hodges and, and Terry Sanford. And that is this notion of North Carolina moderation, which everybody is so proud of. I wrote a manuscript for Oxford University Press last year, which made the point that because of, of, of moderation in North Carolina, there has been less progress uh, in school desegregation, less progress in integration uh, than in places that had been more massively resistant uh, and more aggressive uh, uh, about, about segregation. There is something about decent people's bigotries uh, that I think you want to think about and be self-critical about all of us, including every one of us. And it's so easy to be decent uh, and bigoted at the same time. And it's not that you aren't decent. I'm not suggesting that. That was the story, really, about the governor, about uh, about right. him, for instance, a decent man, yeah. uh, bigoted uh, at the same time, and, and probably very, very unapologetic about. Um, one of the things to keep in mind about the way North Carolina has treated African-American organizations, whether commercial, cultural, uh, residential, or whatever, is that there is a playbook, and particularly the news media uh, uses playbook. And it is the way to discredit African-American organizations. You touched on it in some ways. There are three legs to the stool of this playbook. One is that black people are incompetent and can't manage. The other is they're corrupt and self-dealing. And the third is they're oversexed and, and they get involved in improprieties. You put those three together and it's very difficult to maintain an African-American organization in not only lots of states, but particularly here. Yes, ma'am. comments. As I said, I had planned to have us take a few minutes to break up into some small groups and uh, give you a little prompt to talk about, but it is almost 830 and we're having good discussion here, so we'll just go on with that for just a few more minutes. And what I'm going to ask you to do instead, um, we get a lot of questions um, at, and comments um, at, at these sessions about, okay, so what do we do? We're learning all this stuff. What do we do? Well, and our answer first is 
Well, keep learning. That's, that's the first step, because there's a lot to learn. Um, but what I, what I would encourage you to do after, you know, after this tonight is, is go back home and think about this and talk about it with, with friends, neighbors, coworkers. What can you, can, you, can you go back now and look at both the museum and its development and its founders and its leaders um, and, um, and, and how you have, may have viewed that or things that may have, have uh, you may have read or heard and gotten a certain impression. And with the benefit of, of having, having listened to this tonight, this analysis, maybe now you can look at it differently or re-examine it and see something you didn't see before. And I'd also encourage you to take some other event or organization or happening or in Greensboro that you know might be something that's racially um, relevant or, or involves race or racism or inequity, racial inequities, and see and take your own, do your own examination of well, how is this handled and do I see these same things that were under the surface and, and, and um, pre present in the attitudes and the reactions and the treatment of this event or this organization or this initiative? Try to just start and continue to try to use that, that lens and, and that self-awareness to look at it differently. Um, just any other final question or comment before we? Yes, ma'am. I have two. Um, we have a friend, a, a historian of civil rights. He wrote a book on the history of civil rights in Mississippi. And when they came to visit, no surprise, we went to the museum. And when uh, when John John Dittner, the author of a book named called Local People. Uh, when he came out, he said, that is a great museum. He said, I thought it was just going to be about the museum, the, the sit-ins themselves, and it was going to end when the cats of uh, lunch counter anybody. He said, but it really did the job. And we've heard various people say it differently, but it was the one of the sparks that spread this set of ideas and this way of doing things across the country. And the, those of you who haven't seen the uh, exhibit in the museum where it shows the different you could tap on the cities and across the country and see what happened and so forth. So it, it's really a museum that historians think is great. And the second thing is in that, following from that, um, here's what I would love to see all of us do. Go to the museum, join the museum, support the museum, and argue with the city council that the museum should have a line of support all the time. Make some institutional change happen here where there isn't any real consistent support. If the historical museum gets whatever it is, every year, great. I like that museum. Why shouldn't the Civil Rights Museum get at least that much, maybe twice that much? every year, then we'd have a really different city. Mm -hmm. Anyway. What do you think about the 
most of us who have visited and take friends and family, or I get to go through school as well, about us writing letters to the editor ourselves. I think that would be a wonderful idea. There have been a few, and the more the better. <laughs> yes? I'm uh, compelled to uh, bring up some fresh tar for the news and record and its current uh, editor. And that being, when Brian Stevenson was here, I thought he had a great message. Mm -hmm. The news and record put a photo of him in there. Now, it was a nice, big, classy photo, but apparently it was covered for the fact that they weren't willing to share his message. And I as much told them, I said, for whatever reason, shame on you for not writing it up. And the answer was, oh, we're sorry. The person that was supposed to cover that came down with the flu, and we didn't have a substitute. <laughs> what a bunch of BS. Thank you. So our first other instance. <laughs> Okay, um, it's 8.30. I thank you all for being here. I appreciate it very much. And I'm going to turn it back over to Cindy for any closing announcements she needs to make. Thanks, Diane. Uh, thank you all for your...